0: Okay, welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Monday, January twenty second, and we have back on the program our great friends at Fast Markets, Will Adams and Jordan Roberts. Um, we had you, Will, alone uh, here in October. We're going to play back some of um, your uh, musings back then.
1: Um, we think, you know, now because we're starting to see those cutbacks, um, we think the price falls will start to level out now. Uh, if anything, we're expecting a bit of a rebound um, in into the final um, months of the year. Will, what is your long-term price assumption? So yeah, we think you know prices for the, as I say, sort of short term, we think we're moving higher again. The twenty-five, thirty-five sort of dollar per kilogram is a sort of a, a comfortable
2: range to be um,
1: oscillating around.
2: Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank Lithium Royalty Corp. Listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. We'll share more later in the video.
0: We thought we had a, a bit of a market bottom and would recover, but prices accelerated uh, downward. You know, um, since then, and we're going to discuss that here. But uh, before uh, we get into that, just want to uh, highlight uh, the Fast Markets flagship uh, conference, and it will be again in Las Vegas. It's June twenty fourth to the twenty seventh. So. It had record attendance last year, uh, which we all should have taken as a uh, overly bullish sign. But uh, nevertheless, we live in interesting times is both a blessing and a a curse, according to a a Chinese proverb. And uh, these markets have turned very fast negatively in nine months. And uh, six months from now, they could uh, change very significantly in in a positive direction. But uh, overnight, I want to start with uh, this um, lion town. Uh, announced that uh, their debt package um, will need to be refinanced, right? So just three months ago, they had agreed a package after uh, Albemarle had had left the deal. And uh, the reason that they gave for having to refinance on a smaller package was actually due to a price reporting agency that they had agreed with their financiers, their syndicate of lenders, basically said, uh, we're we're going to lend to you against what Woodmac, you know, the former Rosskill, uh, forecasts for lithium spodumene prices in particular. And 3 months ago when they negotiated the deal, uh, there was one price, and now last Friday it arrived on Liontown's desk the new Woodmac report which said spodumene prices in 2027, 28 and 29 would be $950 CIF uh, China. And as a result of that, the lenders were not willing to lend as much. Uh, and Tony uh, at Town said that those were very aggressively uh, low, in his opinion. Uh, Rodney and I kind of agree with that. I spoke with, uh, Jordan, why don't you uh, tell me um, what you sent overnight? Are your forecasts for 27, 28, 29, as well as, you know, in the nearer term? And as a result of core and... Um, this this LionTown news, uh, what impact this might have on your, your forecasts.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, our, our forecast for 2027 is actually $1,600 a tonne, so, um, $650 a tonne higher than the, uh, the price used in, in the LionTown funding. Um, we then see it slightly coming off in 2028, 2029, 2029 um, to around 1250 a tonne and $1,300 a tonne. Um, I think, at least in the near term, we have this year averaging twelve hundred dollars a ton, and next year eleven $1, hundred dollars a ton. Um, but like you said, based on the recent announcements, you know, this forecast was done in November. Since then, we've had the announcement from Core. Um, we've also heard of some um, cost implications for African African producers, um, such as Arcadia, which uh, you know they're currently making a loss, apparently, and looking to off staffs staff in our next forecast i definitely think there's scope to increase the the price forecast for this sure. year and next year based on all the lower what in production
0: when are you going to put are you going to wait for the quarterly results to uh, come out from the spodumy producers before you come up with that new forecast because the uh, Pilbara and mid-reds are coming out this week
3: uh yes yeah the the um the q1 update will be out at the end of february
0: okay so just to bear this in mind, any uh, lithium executive or issuer, or just like, in my opinion, I'm just like shocked that such a large financing package that Liontown negotiated with a syndicate was based on um, one data point from one provider and that provider, you know, Woodmack Rosskill basically downgraded their price 60%, but had fast markets numbers the numbers you just articulated been in the mix if they said oh we're going to use a blend of wood mac and fast markets price you know then maybe um the although you didn't update your price you know uh, last friday as they did uh you know maybe they wouldn't have had to reduce that package so very interesting how powerful price reporting agencies actually can be in influencing um you know markets here and one would think maybe why don't you take a blend of not only fast markets and woodmac but benchmark you know CRU uh, it's very interesting how these um these dynamics play play themselves out but uh, okay so Will, you published a good note, um, late last week, which we've seen has gotten good traction on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, and, you're talking about, you know, inventories generally, uh, I want to compare, uh, I want you to discuss that, but also, you know, Albemarle in their November, um, presentation was also talking about, uh, you know, inventories being low at, you know, at the cathode level, at the converter level. And uh, we still haven't seen. You know, we thought the destocking would happen aggressively. Then it hasn't happened. So, please explain your your note um, and, uh, and and your thoughts uh, for the start of the year. Yeah. So
1: we are seeing we're tracking uh, stocks in the sort of across the sort of the value chain in China, uh, and we are seeing sort of stocks coming down, trending down now uh, quite uh, quite smartly. Um, we're seeing a, certainly a big sort of, um, reduction in stocks in the cathode active materials manufacturers. And that's one of the areas where we think, you know, we, we need to see that destock um, which then we'll see orders start to work back up the supply chain. Again, uh, once the, once the market has, destocked uh, de-stocked more, um, you know, I think it's, you know, what we see in these price swings, um, whether it's on the upside or the downside, so much has to do with. You know, whether the market is in sort of uh, restocking or destocking mode. Um, and we've just been in a very aggressive destocking mode. And I think, you know, that really goes all the way back to, you can trace it back to you know, the run up in price we saw in 2021, 20, um, 22, which went to actually, you know, extreme levels with um, some of the lithium carbonate prices up like over 1,400%. I think that, that created a huge sort of pain threshold for people, which forced them to, re- to destock. Um, and then as soon as you stop seeing prices falling, then, you know, that just encourages more destocking, stocking especially in a market where, you know, it's been, you know, it's, you, you can't really hedge. You can hedge now, but, you know, that's basically the stocks come on,
0: uh, it's come on in China and it's come on in in the U.S. to some extent. So what has happened in the last um, three months, in October, again, you came on here and you thought. Um, the destocking was largely ended, um, but it's only accelerated since then. So, what's going on?
1: Yeah, so we haven't seen as much cutbacks uh, as we thought we probably would have seen, uh, mainly in the sort of lepidolite operations in China. Um, I think because you've had the um, G G GFX, um, ex- um exchange in China. That has created the ability for um, Chinese producers, not just producers, sorry, Chinese producers, but also those holding stock to be able to start uh, hedge selling. So that's added to the sort of the downward price momentum. That's slightly weaker than expected demand. And cer- certainly the fourth quarter of the year tends to be a strong period for demand. Historically, we, haven't, we didn't see that this
0: year. Okay, but the demand starts like from the cathode level. When you say demand, right? So the the the, the, the cathode, if the cathode makers, which are operating at very low days of inventory, are not buying, that's because they're not seeing their battery and EV customers, you know, six months from now, you know, buying or selling vehicles.
1: Yeah, but they also, if you look at the, that chart, um, you know that where the big buildup of inventory was was at the cam manufacturers. So they've got the inventory. You know they can destock and destock longer, and that's uh, created a sort of a, a weaker than expected
0: demand. But I thought I those the, guys in November, according to Albemarle, were on single days inventory.
1: Yeah, we had we heard similar things, but we we're looking at the data. It
3: doesn't seem to be that case. I would also probably add that um, you know, consumption levels, although EV demand has been you know, seriously strong, December was a was a bumper month, um, there's a bit of an overhang of battery inventory, which means the increased EV sales can't be effectively transmitted upstream. So until the battery inventory is down to a slightly lower levels, they're not going to have incentive to um, order more cam material and therefore more ca- cam people are quite happy running off long-term contracts at the moment they're supplying their volumes they need and have no need to to delve into the spot market yet
4: so that's just on that uh jordan that's a highly contested depending on who you speak to as mm-hmm. to where battery cell inventories are um was one of the things i wanted to raise as well we're hearing talk of um of uh, lfp cell prices going under 50 dollars this year which I would think, you know, that would put profitability back to the EV makers. so that would be an incentive to push volume. Um, where do you see, uh, you know, the sell inventories, and and what do you think uh, is a reasonable inventory level to carry in in months for uh, for uh, the sell guys and for you know downstream from them? You know, how much, you know, how many EVs should one really have on the showroom floor, or how much time?
1: Yeah, I think generally I'd say like sort of two months is probably um, what it what it has been. Depends on what part of the the, cost, you know, the supply chain you're looking at, but I think if you're further um, sort of midstream and you're relying on longer supply chains, then you know given all the sort of disruptions we've seen, you know we saw it initially after COVID. We then saw it with the um, the Suez Canal when that was blocked. We've seen it with you know in other areas um there are more and more disruptions um and now obviously we saw it with um you, the ukraine war and more recently with the sort of the red sea and the ship the shipping container so i think with given all these we're seeing more and more sort of big disruptions i think people are probably you unite know, would be more comfortable holding like three three months worth of stock but again it's not just about the comfort level there are other aspects of it so you don't want to be holding a lot of stock if prices are falling and you can't hedge it um, you know, there's a cash flow of tying up uh, inventory as well, depending on interest rates and cost of money. So all those factors need to be taken into account as well. So it's, it's, it's a sort of, a, uh, I think, you know, on average, if people in good conditions, then, you know, between two and three months worth of stock would be ideal, but it will vary around that depending on the market conditions and trade conditions. I think and I, where would you say we are now? In China, in the, I'd say we're we're generally about three and a half months, probably, so not, not trial set up at end? no, but but I'd also say that in China, probably because so much of the processing um, and so much of the availability is in China, uh, then name might well feel more comfortable with having with carrying less imagery.
3: Yeah, I mean I would say on sale cost um, our our cost index, which is put together by by Krishna and Mewtwo, Um He, for December, has the LFP um, average sale cost at $74.3 per per kilowatt hour. Um, That's based on a one gigawatt hour per year operation. So, obviously, there's going to be lower prices when you take into account scale. Um, But that is 4.1% down month on month and 37.4% down year on year. So, yeah. So, we're not quite thinking we're at that $50 level yet.
4: No, I'm saying later on in the year, that's that's what I'm I'm hearing. So yeah. if you if you convert to where prices were a year ago, that's quite a big saving on a say a sixty kilowatt hour battery pack.
1: Yeah, and no, you know, all anything that goes in to make EVs cheaper and get some sort of closer to the 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 comparable cost of an ICE vehicle, you know, is all going to be good news. But there are other obviously other considerations as well, you know. Some people are not ready for EVs yet. You know, some people, the the infrastructure, charging infrastructure isn't there. Um, So I think there's so many other sort of factors that sort of need to slot into place to really, so you can just say, you know, lower prices is going to, you know, encourage everybody to move towards EVs. You know, there are a lot of other factors there, but, you know, and that again depends on where, where you are in the world.
2: Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. Lithium Royalty Corp. is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp. is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit LithiumRoyaltyCorp.com.
4: Guys, one of the things I wanted to touch on was where Europe and the U.S. is in terms of onshoring or reshoring or setting up independent supply chains. How do you think yeah. uh, you know, progress is, is happening in those jurisdictions? And uh, you know, what are your thoughts going forward the next few years? Can U.S. and Europe fill all the gaps on cell cathode and and raw materials.
1: I think the short answer is um, no, they can't. I think there's a lot of catching up to do. Uh, Jordan, do you
3: want to go into a bit more detail? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, d- I don't think we're any near as, you know, there's been, there's been a few announcements, but on the other hand, there's also been some you know, worrying news, especially the, you know, deferred investment in the Megaflex facility by Albemarle in the US, um, but they're still providing capex for the Chinese and Australian facilities. Um, and I think in the current price environment, you are likely to see financing become more difficult to, to come by. Um, but, you know, considering the investment from the US government, you know, and the build out of the domestic supply chain, including these generous incentives to, you know, the decision to defer the Megaflex conversion facility has come at a bit I'm of a surprise. Surprised. Because based on the it's demand on the projections, demand. Um, there, will there will be still a significant lack of domestic refined supply in the us yeah so um i think the you know even if um europe
1: and u.s company uh yeah companies are relying on you know but getting their batteries from you know korea or japan you know there's still a lot of that material the ingredients of that material will still be being processed in china so it's very hard to see in the short term um too much independent or yeah independence from china Uh, in time yes but it's just it'll take time and on that note
4: i noticed that quite a few that the number of ira compliant vehicles in the us is quite low actually is that going to stay the same
1: yeah so we will stay. we will you know we have seen that it we get it'll take time before um, more us made vehicles are, are you know are, are ira compliant um but in again i think it's it's a big it's a big order um to try and break Away from China in such a sh- relatively short period of time, considering how long it can take to build up domestic supply chains. And just uh,
4: sticking with that theme, I'm sure you would have noticed the chart that China became the largest exporter of vehicles last year. It overtook Japan and others. So, an our watering number, and really in short order, uh, with about a million EVs. And my models, if you look at the ramp up of of EV production in China, I'm expecting a big number on exports again this year, probably even a doubling. So it looks like the rest of world category outside of the US and and Europe is going to go, you know, to Chinese, uh, you know, manufacturers that have already a, a substantial and decent offering in very low price points, which makes sense in Africa where I am and, and elsewhere. Do you guys, you know, see that and and how? Are OEMs even possibly going to compete with that when these guys are making tons of sub-$20,000 models?
1: Yeah, we're seeing it. You know, we do see that. We're all, even in the UK, there are a lot of Chinese-made EVs around now. You know, we're, it's been noticeable, I'd say, in the last year or so, how many more there are. Um, You know, it, I suppose it comes down to whether the US or whether EU uh, countries start to uh, either have uh, import taxes or whether they go on to sort of um, right. carbon border taxes and things like that to try and um, sort of level the playing field.
4: Yeah, it would be interesting if, you, if what you're saying is the components in the battery are still Chinese made, what's the difference?
1: Yes, but it, again, it'll come down to that sort of carbon, you know, whether there is a carbon border tax.
4: And, but rest of worlds where it's outside of Europe and outside of the U S that's fair game.
1: Yes. And I think, you know, that you've, we've seen over the, over the, you know, last year or whatever, there's been a lot of call where well, China was just making so much capacity, um, far too much for their own need. but maybe that's their, you know, their aim is, um, after decades and decades of playing second fiddle for their for cars from the us or from north america or from europe you know they've got this lead in the eb space and may, you know they're looking now to hold that lead and to really become the supplier of ebs to to the to the rest of the world um so i think you know that that takes you know that we should expect we've seen it in so many different things we've seen it in in other commodities as well we, you know they china has this capacity to just build loads of capacity far more than is necessarily needed. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we're, we're also seeing these sort of low lithium prices as well, but it doesn't have to stop at the commodity level. It can happen at the industrial level as well. And just broadly
4: uh, in terms of the the broader demand thesis, have you changed? Were space markets adjusted or? or lowered or or increased your EV penetration rates and your sort of expectation on EV sales going up to say 2030?
3: I think they've remained fairly level over the last few months. I think there's been a slight uptick in hybrid, plug-in hybrid vehicles. Um, We're seeing stronger growth in hybrid electric vehicles um, in China. We're also seeing they're performing quite strong across the US as well. So um, I believe over 50% of all the Ford Mavericks sold in the U.S. with a hybrid powertrain. Um, They sold a significant amount of F-150 hybrids as well as an over 50% increase in F-150 full electric sales. Um, So I think hybrids will be uh, an important component of sales um, in the U.S. Um, And and going back into the rest of the world, I don't think there's any brand loyalty in Southeast Asian countries. They'll take the you know the best car that they can probably get for their money, and also, if we if we look at Europe, there's forecast to be about a million less people in the middle class by 2030. Whereas, the you know the developing countries in Southeast Asia, that's where the growing middle classes, and those are the people that typically buy vehicles more regularly, upgrade their vehicles. So, um, I think Southeast Asia, Thailand, Cambodia, Indonesia are going to be important um sales regions for EVs going forwards. So broadly speaking, it might there might be an adjustment on gigawatt
4: hours between full battery electric and and plug-in hybrid, but the, the penetration and total volumes are largely are unchanged.
3: Absolutely. And um yeah, there was a recent survey in the u k. It, it was a small survey, just a couple thousand people, um but ninety two percent of current EV owners said they wouldn't move back to an i c vehicle. Um, for me, that, that's a po- that's a
0: positive. The hybrid uh, question you mentioned uh, has come up uh, w- with the IRA guidance. There's, you know, they they categorize a lot of you know, plug-in hybrids to to get the uh, seventy five hundred dollar credit uh, and maybe less full EVs. Um, and there's I saw some chatter on on Twitter about uh, you know that that might save the, the incumbents bacon rather than um, them going bankrupt. You know, over the, the next kind of couple of years. It is that and they lobby, you know, hard, you know, for that. Uh, but I want to go back, uh, Will, we have maybe five or 10 more minutes to, to your comment, uh, which you just made, uh, earlier and you've made it multiple times before in our interviews with you is you know, never underestimate, you know, the Chinese, you know, and their innovativeness and their ability, um to respond. There is a narrative uh, that I would love to believe, um, uh, which is the iron ore analogy that Ken Rinsden articulated in our interview recently, uh, Dale Henderson, uh, which is that um, you know, China does sometimes subsidize, they subsidize high grade or high cost magnetite, you know, and that just caused you know, the cost curve to be higher. And the parallel is if they're subsidizing high cost lipidolite now to some degree, or, um, I don't know if China's subsidizing it or if, if CATL, um, is, uh, you know, going to operate at a loss, you know, just so that they have this alternative supply. Uh, but you know, the thought process is that the higher cost, the cost curve will just be higher. Therefore, if you're lower cost, like the low cost iron ore producers, you're going to generate these software margins at the, at, at the mine level. But there are many other instances in China where that's not the case. So, in nickel, we thought nickel was going to be a big problem, but you had the nickel pig iron, you know, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. And, and most recently um, with HPAL working, you know, but there are other examples of what they've done to, you know, solar uh, panels, um, you know, copper. So, to, to make this iron ore analogy again, I'd like to believe it. Um, and I think there is some merit to the iron ore analogy. But it, it, it's it's anomalous to other analogies where, whether it be steel, whether it be aluminum, you know, copper, you know, all these markets are are commodities, you know, and yeah, it'll be cyclical. The the, the miners will make mo- you know, big money in in periods of time, but then it'll be a bust, like it's like oil. So, in your opinion, is lithium like iron ore, or is lithium going to go, or or is spodumene like iron ore? And, or is lithium going to go the route of all of these other examples, um, where it's just commoditized and, and it's a tough market.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's, I would say it's probably just a building over capacity, less control. And as a result of that prices remain under pressure. You know, I think that's, and I think that's happened. More now because it's a still a relatively small market in a in a strong growth area. Um, I think it'll have less of an impact later on as the whole market gets that much bigger, and we need to pull. We need to get more resources from outside of China or outside of China, plus China's partners. Partners, and therefore that will lift the cost anyway. But maybe one reason why sort of the likes of CATL are saying they'll run their operations at a loss is you know if you go back to the to the thing that. You know, lithium is a specialty chemical, and we all know that if you're making um, lithium carbonate or lithium, certainly lithium hydroxide uh, or batteries, you want a you want a um, a consistent supply. So maybe that's why they're prepared to run their operations on a loss. They've got their their um, cathode ma- sort of make manufacturing process tuned into that type of material, and therefore they want to continue yeah. down that road. If that makes sense.
4: Just on that, if I can jump in there, prices are low. We briefly discussed where the cost per kilowatt hour could get you on LFP. Where does this leave sodium ion? Because to my mind, if LFP goes under fifty, the sodium ion got no future.
1: I think Jordan, you might have something to say on that, but I think just one thing is, you know, I think generally you'll have different battery chemistries will suit different applications. You know, so sodium ion has up, you know, a, a a higher safety record, so that might uh, be be applicable for certain types of lithium ion batteries where the lithium, sorry, certain types of batteries where the lithium ion batteries might not be so applicable but on the cost thing, Jordan?
3: Yeah, we, for our our next update due the end of February, we've actually dropped our sodium ion battery penetration in EVs from uh, 9% in 2033 to 5% with just a 3% penetration of sodium ion in EVs in China, which you would think would be the global leader of it as well. Um, we've actually kept it the same in ESS. So that points to you know what Will was saying about application, but certainly um, EVs, I think at these sort of prices, there's just no need for it. Um, we're actually seeing um, more upgrades to LMFP, um, and slight downgrades to NCM eight one one, just because the price of cobalt and nickel is so low at the moment that actually on a on a cost basis it doesn't make sense to reduce or thrift those metals. And um, 622, um is perfectly fine for most people's ranges, and it's inherently safer. So we're seeing a, a slower transfer over to eight one one in the long term.
4: Just uh, on on the sodium iron, up to what lithium price on a on a cross performance basis, let's say an EVs is is it still in favor of of LFP or NMF, NMFB? B?
3: Um we haven't actually uh, crunched those numbers, but um if, if we do we'll we'll be around right touch.
1: Yeah, yeah I think on that if you've got lithium lithium ion sorry your NFP battery prices coming down, um you're gonna you know, you've got companies who are investing in sodium iron, they're likely, their costs are also likely to come down uh, as well. So I think that's something to bear in mind. But I think, you know, I think sodium mines c- came along really as a result of the high cost of either NCM or or lithium and the other battery raw materials. You know, I think there is that price, you know, if we do have no commodity prices for, for longer um you know then I think there is less need for that sodium ion and and there probably will be less sort of investment going into that area um mm-hmm. but it I, it it is the yeah, sodium ion batteries are out they are there they are being used, so i think that will you know will remain a technology for for batteries for for
0: part of the market so we'll um just to uh um, i know we have only a few more minutes but um Look, we, we've been speaking, uh, Rodney and I, we're having four or five uh, meetings a day uh, now in day 11 um, and just putting together, you're piecing together a, a mosaic of, of what's happening, speaking to developers, producers, sell side analysts and the like. And, and um, there's a number of uh, projects out there w- w- which are having strategic processes, uh, you know, attracting Western OEMs, Chinese, and the like, and um, it seems like the, the, the Western OEMs uh, uh, and Asian or ex-China uh, OEMs are, are are maybe pulling back a little bit, you know. But the Chinese are becoming more aggressive um, in their approaches, and we saw like Atlas sign a deal with the Chinese, two Chinese groups, uh, late last year, which seemed to remind me of like 2016, 2017, you know, Western Australia spodumene deals. Uh, so there are some conspiracy theorists out there who have basically been arguing that, uh, you know, the Chinese are manipulating the market. Um, they didn't like that. Uh, um, if you own your own rock, you're God, and all the margins were going to the miners. Um, and now big China has come back in in, in force here and um, is manipulating the market so that they could acquire assets on the cheap right now. Um, how true do you think that is? Uh, and you mentioned the GFX. Uh, you know, which started in July and, and around the time, you know, the, the prices have, have come down. Do you subscribe to this conspiracy theorist, you know, argument, or is it, um, other more fundamental things at play here is just like, you know, a proper investment and you, you could turn on the mines a lot faster than you can integrated mines, you know, outside of China. Yeah,
1: I'm. I'm not such a fan of the conspiracy theory. I do think it is more of a factor of the fundamentals. In that we've had more suppliers come in in a short period of time. Um, again, we saw it in 2017, 2018. We've had another sort of run of that, and we're now really waiting for a combination of you know demand to pick up, but also uh, some more supply restraint. And I think we'll see both both of that, both of those. Um, you know, I think. I think what happens is that when you have this low price environment, and if Western companies uh, do struggle, if they're struggling to get finance or they, you know, taking longer delays, then I think China, you know, will step in and take advantage of that. I'm not necessarily saying they've engineered it for that. It might just be, it's
0: happened, so we will take advantage of it. Okay, it's going to be a much tougher financing environment of equity prices are quite low. You know, debtors are pulling, uh, you know, from Wyantown. So Western OEMs, I think, are are reluctant to finance uh, in the way that they were this time last year. Uh, So the Chinese would be, you know, great, uh, you know, if you want to advance your project and they're able to. In some places, they're not able to, like in America and Canada. Um, but in, in Argentina and Brazil and Africa projects there, um, I, I, would expect to see, you know, funding from the Chinese to, to accelerate. Uh, but you, um, your forecasts, even though they're more optimistic than Wood McKenzie's extremely bearish ones, uh, Jordan, uh, even in the, I don't know, 1200, 1300, you know, even 1400 spodumene from here until 20. Uh, twenty nine are exceptionally, you know, bearish numbers. Um, I think Rodney, you, you think you, you, you know, we need like two thousand, you know, to incentivize, um, you know, projects. So at, at the prices you're forecasting, you see any, you know, projects that were cut, you, you know, their their feasibility studies were cut at um, you know, much higher prices. It, it, it's just not they can't get done, right? So so. What happens, you, you think you're gonna push those, you'll get the supply cuts to push up those forecasts or the, what, what do you think?
3: Um, I think so potentially. And if we look just a bit further out than 2029, like we, we have our spot pricing prices going significantly over $2,000 a tonne because you know, we see a supply gap um, opening then. So I don't think these low prices are, are, are forever. Um, I also think we have um, a widening of the cost curve we've got several brine assets ramping up that tend to be lower cost anyway. So the need for that higher cost supply um, get pushed out of the cost curve off the fourth quartile. Um, you're going to have, you know, high grade quality assets like Mount, ha- Mount Holland ramping up, um, which is, should be a fairly low cost producer of bodymine units. And obviously that's going to be integrated. Um, having said that, um, if we start having projects uh you know, such as your Gulaminas large-scale project in Africa, um, maybe um other projects in in North America, your James Bay's, um, or or certainly some of the, the projects in Brazil being um pushed back or or just, just cut altogether, then certainly there's scope for um an increase in in um prices. And I think Will we reach the, the highs where you start incentivizing DSO as well? Um, potentially at some points. Sure, the price may, it's, it's volatile, it's inherently volatile. We expect that to continue. But um, I remember Global Lithium saying it could probably generate value from DSO at about $2,500 a ton on an SC6. Um, so I would say that would be the minimum price to incentivize kind of DSO shipments.
0: Um, yeah, but DSO, as Rodney said, is the canary in the coal mine. If we're getting there, then the price is too high. We uh, yeah, shouldn't be exactly. shipping DSO. Like like DSO should not be a product. Um, yeah. You know, Pilbara watched the move like downstream into, you know, some higher value added. That makes no sense uh, in that in that sense. But um, do you have any insight as to whether or not Gulamina, you know, is, is, is going to be, can't just increase their stake in that. We understand that to be, you know going forward with no problem
3: uh yep yeah, that's that's our understanding um as well okay. same for, uh, for J- J- the james Luxe bay
0: and, and 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 you may ask if that's like a decisions you know we'll be listening closely to from arcadian perspective but we understand the is under construction you know mount holland's under construction kathleen valley is under construction so um you know these things are going ahead and lithium will be needed um but uh yeah, you say 2029, 20, you know, you, you you have deficits after that, but that's like miles away. That's like six years from now, right? Like uh, a Ford, a GM, a LG, SK, you, you know, when they're negotiating with a, with a pro I don't think any project that currently has a project on the cards is going to, you know, take too much faith in a 2030, you, you know, price number. Um, there's going to have to be some meeting of the mind. Otherwise, those those greenfield projects just won't get funded. You know, the peak pessimism, as we mentioned last video a few days ago with a question mark, has, uh, um, and, and we're not at peak pessimism because, uh, you see, you know, Lion Town, you know, a penny stock once again. But thank you very much. Uh, your note is uh, somewhat, you know, optimistic, Will, uh, that yes, we will get to a point, um, you know, where the destocking happens, um, stops happening and the buying starts again. And, uh, In Albemarle We Trust uh, or Albemarle to the rescue. Let's go see what they're going to do at Greenbushes and and Wajjana. So um, looking forward to seeing those quarterly results. Thanks again, Jordan and Will. uh, And uh, for all uh, our viewers, uh, make note again of the June 24th to June 27th uh, Fast Markets Conference in Las Vegas. Rodney and I hope to see you there. Thank you. Thank you.